There is a story of a young boy who made a toy wooden sailboat. He loved that boat. And he would take it down into the river and he would sail it for hours through the currents, imagining that he was the captain of a great ship sailing the oceans. And one day the little boat got away from him and it was swept downstream and it was lost. Years later, the boy, who was a young man now, was walking in a pawn shop that was located on Oxford Street in London and he noticed this little boat. And he picked it up and he looked at it and he turned it over and his initials were carved in the bottom of the boat. It was his boat from when he was a child. He went to the owner of the shop to ask for it and the owner looked at it, looked at the initials and then said to him, eh, it might've been your boat at one point, but it's mine and you're gonna have to pay for it. And while he was saying that, he took the price ticket that was on it that said five pounds and he looked at the man and he said, it's a hundred pounds for the boat. The man quietly took out his wallet, paid the full value that he asked, gently picked up his boat and carried it home with him. And with tears in his eyes and his mind flooded with the memories, he lovingly restored that boat to its former glory. And you could hear him whisper as he was working on it, first I made you, then I redeemed you, now I have restored you, you are mine. You probably have heard that story or maybe have heard that story in one form or another, but that story was actually written to represent the Isaiah verses that we're gonna be working together with today. And it's gonna serve as an outline for our message. First I made you, then I redeemed you, now I have restored you, you are mine. In the passage, Isaiah is talking to the nation of Israel and he's reminding Israel that God had chosen them and had saved them when they were slaves in Egypt. God had freed them from slavery, brought them out, and led them into the, into the promised land. And this passage reflects the story of the nation of Israel in Genesis and Exodus and is a description of God's character as a redeemer. We will look through this passage at the story of the nation of Israel and let it lead us into understands God redeeming you and me through Jesus Christ. First, I made you. Looking at verse one in the middle, it says, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. The names Jacob and Israel are synonymous in scripture. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and in chapter 32 of Genesis, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. In the latter part of the book of Genesis, God is making and creating the nation of Israel to be his people. God made them a nation through his love, and he was going to be their God, and he would bless the world through them. God created Israel at the end of Genesis, and at the beginning of Genesis, God created man. In Genesis 1.27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. First, I made you. God created you. It's a statement of his workmanship. It's a statement of its intimacy. It's a statement of purpose. God did not accidentally create man just like he did not accidentally create Israel. God purposely made man through his love. And when Adam and Eve were created in the garden, everything there was good. And everything there was created for them. God did not make man as an afterthought, but it was the culmination, the crown of his creation. God did not create man and then just go away. God spoke with them and walked with them in the garden. He knew them and they knew God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve started with a complete, perfect fellowship with God and with each other. And then I redeemed you. 
Isaiah 43.1 says, it concludes with God saying, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. If I were to give you a scriptural definition of what redeemed means, it would be something like to regain possession of someone in exchange for a payment. Throughout scripture, God gives us examples of redemption. The story of Noah and the ark in Genesis 6 and 8. The story of Abraham and his son Isaac and God providing the ram in place of the sacrifice of Isaac. The book of Ruth where she's redeemed by Boaz. The parable of Jesus talks about the prodigal son in Luke 15. The book of Hosea where God and Hosea, God asked Hosea to redeem his wife from slavery after she returned to prostitution. Over and over again in scripture, God describes his character of redemption. And the first part of our definition is to regain possession of something. Meaning that something is lost, it's broken, it's been taken. And so we're gonna look at Israel first. In the time of Exodus, Israel was not yet a nation. They were just slaves of Egypt. And in Exodus 3, 7, God is speaking with Moses at the burning bush, and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. But they're not just slaves that are being held by a nation against their will. Many of the Israelites had given into the Egyptian world and they had forgotten that they were the people of God. If you jump just a little further in Exodus, we're given some insight of who these people really were. Exodus 16, three. And the people of Israel said to them, which is Moses and Aaron, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate our bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Exodus 32, nine, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Exodus 32, four, and then he, meaning Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with an engraving tool and they made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Many of the people of Israel were ungrateful, stiff-necked idolaters. They had completely forgotten who God was and would rather have remained slaves in Egypt. There are times when I'm reading the story of Exodus and I'm just looking at them and I'm like, come on people, do you not realize the state that you were in and do you not see what God has done for you? And then I start to think about my own heart. And just like Israel, I realize that I'm a slave, not a slave to Egypt, but I am a slave to sin. And I'm not just entangled in sin and held against my will, but that I am sinful and that I can forget that I'm a child of God. I am never gonna free myself from sin, but through Christ, I can be freed from the penalty of that sin. Isaiah 53, six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of it all. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are slaves. Just like Israel was a slave to Egypt, we are slaves to sin, not just held captive, but because we are sinners. This is important for us to understand because we are slaves is the reason why we need to be redeemed. Because of God's character of redeemed is displayed, his glory is declared because we are sinners. 
We are made in the image of God, made for him to be in complete fellowship with him, but we are slaves to sin and that we are far from what we were meant to be. This space that's between those two is the place that we need to be redeemed. This is the reason we need to be redeemed. If we had stayed here, there would be no need for it, but we're here and we have to be redeemed. And it's in God's character that he would redeem us. And I start to look at that space and I realize that God is going to redeem us. And if he's gonna redeem us, the first question I ask is, why me? Why am I chosen to be redeemed by him? Romans 5, 19 through 21 says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by one's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. But why? In verse four, we're given the answer. Because you are precious in his eyes and honored and I love you. We are precious to him, period. That is the reason why. Austin spoke last week about how we are unworthy to be chosen. There is nothing that we can do that is gonna make us worthy to be chosen because we're incapable of doing anything that is worthy to a perfect God. But God has made us precious in his eyes. God has decided that I am precious and God cannot deny himself. He cannot be less than he is and it's God's character to redeem. John 3.15 ends with whoever believes in him may have eternal life is a meaning that we are gonna be redeemed and united with Christ. And then why? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Israel did not need to go out and fight a battle or to clean themselves up to make them worthy to be redeemed from slavery. To be honest, Israel could not have gone out and fought a battle. They could not have cleaned themselves. And it's the same with us. You do not need to go out and be better. You do not need to go out and do better to be redeemed by Christ. And to be honest, you can't. You can't be better. God is the redeemer. That is what he is, and he will redeem because he loves you. So the next question is after why is how. How is he going to redeem us? And the second part of our definition of redemption is that a payment has to be made to redeem something. In our passage, verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. Cush and Sheba are thought to be enemies of Egypt. And then in verse four, I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. As a kid, I used to watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, and there's probably quite a few people in here who've never seen that movie, but stick with me. You're going to get my point before we're all said and done. And the movie was a representation of the story of Exodus, where Moses came to the Pharaoh and asked for his people to go, and the Pharaoh would say no. And then the ten plagues that happened were represented in the movie, and the Pharaoh continued to say no. And I grew up thinking that Egypt was the villain in the story that if they would have just listened and let the people go, then they could have been a, you know, a good part of the story, but they wouldn't. They kept saying no. It was always no. And so I figured at the end they, that God destroyed Egypt because they were evil. That's been my thought my entire life about the Exodus story. But then I was struck with verse three of our passage. 
I give Egypt for your ransom. And I was kind of like, hold on here. What does that mean that God gave Egypt for the ransom? I mean, God destroyed Egypt because they were evil and wicked, right? But think with me for just a little bit about the history of Egypt in scripture. Several times, God utilizes Egypt to be a protector for his people. Abram went there during the famine. Joseph was taken there as a prisoner, and God had plans for Joseph in Egypt to prepare a place for his family. And then God used, utilized Egypt to protect, to protect his family from a small family to grow into a nation of two million. Austin last week talked about how everyone is made in the image of God and has value. The nation of Egypt was made in God's image. The Pharaoh was made in the image of God. Schuyler talked two weeks ago about how God desires to hear his praises from every nation's lips. God wanted Egypt to know him. In Exodus 7, 5, God's talking to Moses and he said, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. I looked at these verses and I began to think, God doesn't make payments in waste or with whatever is left over. He doesn't offer up junk and say, here, take this. I don't want it anymore. I'm gonna use that to pay for something that I think is value. God chose Israel as his own people. They were precious in his sight and he will redeem them. And that the payment for Israel to be redeemed from slavery, God chose Egypt. Not out of malice, not out of their failure, but because Israel is precious to him. I imagine that God wept as he put Egypt on the table to pay the full ransom. That his heart was broken, but that the payment had to be made. His love demanded it. His judgment demanded it. His righteousness demanded it. And it was going to be costly to pay for it. I was dumbfounded by that expression. But here's my point. I grew up my entire life thinking that Egypt was being punished, that Egypt was being thrown away because it was useless, when the truth is that Egypt was incredibly important to God. He loved them dearly, and he wanted them to know him and to love them. I honestly thought Egypt's value was like here. This is where I saw it and understood it to be, but the truth of it is God saw it here, that the value of Egypt was so high. Look at the cross in Christ. And I was struck that if I misunderstood what God was doing with Egypt, I place a high value on Christ. And I think of what he is and what his sacrifice was, but I'll be honest with you, there is such a huge gap between what I see and what God sees. The price of Christ's blood on the cross to be able to pay for our redemption is so huge. It is so significant for God. It's so significant for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Colossians 1.20 says, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or as in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
I am evil doing things in, wrong things in my mind and in my deeds. And through Christ and his blood, I am presented before God as holy and blameless. There is such a high price to be paid to be redeemed. Only God can pay it. The only payment for our sins that is sufficient is the precious blood of Jesus Jesus Christ. So God is the redeemer. Why? Because you are precious to him. How? He is the only one who can make the full payment and that full payment is the blood of Jesus Christ. First I made you, then I redeemed you. Now I have restored you. God does not redeem Israel and then just leave them. Isaiah reminds Israel what God has done for them and what God is going to do for them. In verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. These three short reminders are from Israel's history of what God has done for them. When you pass through the waters refers to Exodus 14 and the parting of the Red Sea and Israel escaping from the Egyptian army. God protected them. And through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you refers to Joshua 3 where the Jordan River was stopped and Israel crossed into the promised land. God led them. And then when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume. He refers to Daniel 3 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked in the burning fire and they were safe because God was with them. And then Isaiah concludes the passage with what God is doing for them. Verses five through seven. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God was restoring them as a nation. It was to fulfill his promises to Abraham of making him the father of many nations, to live in the promised land, and that one of his descendants would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that he would bless the world through his people. Now I have restored you. God does not redeem us through Jesus Christ and then leave us on our own. He gives the Holy Spirit to us today to help us. John 14, 16 through 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God to be in perfect fellowship with God and with each other. Christ died on the cross so that we could be restored fully, to be restored to a perfect relationship and fellowship and union with God and with each other. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I made you. Then I redeemed you, I restored you, and then finally you are mine. Isaiah is reminded at the end of verse one, I have called you by name, you are mine. They are God's chosen people and they belong to him. We are promised the same thing through Jesus Christ, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but that you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That we were redeemed so that we were no longer a slave, but that we are a son, that we are his, that you are mine. I made you. Then I redeemed you. I have restored you. You are mine. When I was a kid, I grew up in a family that went to church every Sunday. I had heard the Bible. I knew a lot of the stories. And I didn't get into a lot of trouble. Um, I didn't get caught very often when I was getting, doing things that were in trouble. I thought if I did the right things, I would be okay. But it was just a veneer that I put over my life that hid my sin that I held in my heart and in the actions that I did. I went off to college and I met up with some people and pretty quickly I could see that they were different than I was. They went to church for different reasons than I did. While at church, they heard different things than I heard. During the day, their day-to-day activities were different than the things that I would do. Slowly, I began to realize I had a religion and that they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I was working myself, uh, working to make myself look good and to get the boxes checked so that I'd be square with God and then I could go about my other business. And they were walking with Jesus. Their hearts were being changed by him and they were worshiping God for who he is. I accepted Christ my freshman year in college. I would like to say that at that point, my life was transformed dramatically and that I was made into the image of Jesus Christ. But to be completely honest with you, for years after that, I continued to pursue the world and to be able to pursue my own sinful nature. But Christ didn't walk away from me and stand at a distance and then say, well, as soon as you're ready, you can come back to me. He was with me, protecting me when I didn't expect or even understand that he was protecting me, that he would prompt me in my heart that I would be listening to him. And he was just waiting for me to take my eyes off of this world and turn and look into his face and that he could then start to transform me fully and completely to be into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, but there are people that I grew up with in high school that would say to themselves, you're a pastor? at a church, what did you do? And the only response to this, I didn't do anything. It's Christ who changed me. There is one important phrase from our passage that we have not talked about. It's from the very first part of verse one. But now, thus says the Lord, but now, but is, an, is a conjunction that is brought into a sentence to show that there has been a path of logic. There has been a path of events that have taken place, but now they're gonna change direction and go a completely different way. And carries it along, but now changes it. Do you guys realize that the natural course of a person's life is to be born, to live in sin, to die and to be eternally separated from God. You don't have to do anything. That is exactly what happens. It just moves along, and this, and that. The only thing that changes that story is a but now. 
But now that you would see and understand that Christ paid your sins on the cross, but now that you would take the time to turn toward him and understand what he was done and accept his gift and have eternal life, but now only changes the end of that story. If you are here today and you've never been redeemed through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, it is so simple, but now. Confess your sins. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the full penalty of your sins and turn and face your creator and be redeemed and restored and be his. Let's pray.